God, we are thankful for an opportunity that we have this morning to gather corporately and thankful for, um, just thankful to be together as family, thankful that we have a good God, is a great father uh, with an amazing son that died for us, um, a Holy Spirit that dwells with us today and dwells in us and among us, moves among us and blesses us in so many different ways. I pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in these next few minutes that the Holy Spirit will do what the Holy Spirit does, and that our eyes and hearts um, will be opened and attentive to really your greatness, your holiness, your majesty, your power, your beauty, that in these next few minutes that our awe will move and that we'll be renewed even if only for a day. Lord, we turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We typically pray for another church on a Sunday morning or pray for someone on the far corners of the field, but maybe we'll do that at some different point this morning. The flow of this morning is a little bit different, if you didn't notice. Just a couple songs up front, really more than anything to prepare our hearts for how we're going to spend these next few minutes. And then the majority of our worship and song is going to be after the sermon, really in some ways as a response to what we're going to consider together in God's Word. So we're going to climb into the message. Y'all can turn down whatever lights need to be turned down, or they may be down. I don't know. It seems just really bright in here. They're down? Okay. All right. Maybe the Holy Spirit is already making it feel bright. <laughs> All right. I have a little exercise for you. Let me, let me do this. I want to give you a map for the morning, just scripturally. Um, we're not going to... I'm going to be going more places than you're going, but I really want you to go especially to three different passages. And you can jot these down. You can go ahead and put bookmarks in them or whatever. Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, and Isaiah 57. Pretty easy. There'll be some other places that I may have you turn, but those are the high watermarks for the morning. Um, So you can go ahead and put a little bookmark or a doily, whatever you might carry with you. Marker. Pickle, I don't know what you want to put in there. I want to ask you to do something this morning before we really begin the message. It's a little exercise. Some of you know what the sermon is about this morning before I ever even have a chance to introduce it because Clint prayed about it, and it's also in your bulletin. So, um, But I want you to do something for me as an exercise. Just, I want you to be really honest with a piece of paper or with your mind for a minute and just fill in the blank for this little short sentence. God is blank. Just whatever pops in your mind first and foremost about what God is, about his, his nature, his character, um, what you think of when you think of God, maybe one word that comes to mind and write that word in that blank. Or if you're not a note taker and you're more visual and you're in your head, you have that blank, fill in that blank with that word. And then we'll see at the end of the morning if you may have a different word for that blank. I did a little exercise this week just considering, just wanting to look at God's word and just say, make sure I don't carry any presuppositions to his word and to truth, which I do often, which we all do to some degree. I went to the word and I said, okay, let me just do a little exercise cover to cover on what the Bible says God is. And I found a pretty exhaustive list. It's not all there, but... I found here here are a few examples. God is with you. God is witness. God is not man. It's good to know. God is giving. Lots of references to God being giving. We would expect that, enjoy that. God is a consuming fire. God is merciful. God is God of gods and Lord of lords. God is in your midst. God is bringing you into a good land. And then the next one goes with that. God is driving them out. He's bringing you into a good land and he's driving out those who aren't supposed to be there. God is testing you. God is your dwelling place. God is gracious and merciful. That would be one we may think of readily. God is greater than man. God is mighty, God is great, God is clothed with majesty, God is my helper, God is a refuge, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, God is an everlasting rock, 
God is able, God is true, God is spirit, God is faithful, God is not gonna be mocked. God is one, God is light, and one that many of you may have gone to as the go-to thing first and foremost, God is love. If you're kind of thinking through that list I gave you, you're probably thinking I went chronologically from the beginning of the Bible to the end, just trying to capture some of those things that our Bible says God is. And we're talking Old Testament context of God bringing you into a good land and driving them out. We're talking about the conquest. These examples of things that God is are pretty exhaustive, but I hope you appreciate and recognize and also paid attention how Clint prayed first, or maybe you've looked at your bulletin and you've noticed that something is glaringly missing. Of that list of things, I don't know how many things are there, one thing I did not mention that God is, God is holy. Let me share some passages with you regarding the holiness of God. Leviticus 19 says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Joshua 24, which you have to be taking in the same It's interesting that we're considering them in the same moment that I just read Leviticus 19. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. 1 Samuel 6, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Psalm 99, let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Psalm 99, 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Isaiah 5, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Isaiah 43, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I also found a bunch of passages on the holiness of even his name. His name is holy. Listen to these passages just from Psalms. Psalm 30, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 33, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Psalm 97, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Psalm 105, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Psalm 106, save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. And Psalm 145, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Passage after passage after passage points toward the holiness of God. I found passages also that point toward the holiness of the Son, God the Son, to be even more specific and more surgical. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. This dude just popped up in the synagogue in the He's he's teaching in the synagogue and this guy with an unclean spirit just starts speaking. And here's what he says. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then in John 6, Peter's confession, which should be near and dear to all of us. All these people are bailing on Jesus. Jesus has said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He says, no one comes to me except that the Father draws him. Bunch of people leave him. They say, these are hard sayings. I don't know if we can deal with this. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says this, we have believed, we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. God is holy. God the Son is holy. And something that we really shouldn't just take as an assumption is the Holy Spirit is holy. I mean, I don't know how many times I've thought of the Holy Spirit. I've heard about the Holy Spirit since I was a, since I could hear. But it just this week has occurred to me that it's the Holy Spirit, not the loving Spirit, not the graceful Spirit, 
Not the merciful spirit, and that's not to say that he's not those things, but first and foremost, he is the Holy Spirit. God is holy. Passage after passage after passage, God the Son is holy. God the Spirit is holy. This morning in this first section of this sermon, I want to do two things. I want to sort of establish that, first of all, God is holy what that means, and also I want you to see that I believe with everything in me that is the attribute of attributes. It is the central attribute of who God is. I've suspected this for some time now. It's not the first sermon I've ever done on holiness in the last 10 years. Years ago, I was studying his holiness and trying to make sense of how would I fill in that blank in that question. God is blank. I joined a Messianic Jewish um, chat board. I'm not, I mean, I confess to them. I'm not a Messianic Jew. I'm not trying to be somebody that I'm not, but I'm curious, somebody who maybe has been steeped in Judaism and has come to faith in Christ, where would they land in filling in that sentence? Now, the problem is this chat room, not chat room, it was message board or something. I don't even know what you call it. Techies know what it is, but I I don't know what it is. I put the question out there, how would you fill in the blank? And man, it had all kind of crazy answers. And it was all over the map. And what I found is on this Messianic Jewish website is a lot of these people were Jewish more by birth rather than by practice. They hadn't been steeped in Judaism and then came to faith in Christ. They were just Jewish Christians. So they were all over the map. But I've suspected for some time that this was the attribute of attributes. I found this quote from a Puritan named John Howe. In 1670, he said this. This may be said, he's speaking of holiness, this may be said to be a transcendental attribute that, as it were, runs through the rest and casts luster upon them, that is, the other attributes. It is an attribute of attributes. It's encouraging for me to hear that from a Puritan theologian, really, from 1670, what he's saying there, it is an attribute of his attributes. And I'm going to make this statement. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. I would argue that a look at any of his other attributes apart from holiness will be a distorted look. And I'm going to give you an example here in a minute. But first, let me define for you holiness. The word holy means at face value separate, separate. It comes from an ancient word that means to cut or to separate. It includes thoughts of transcendence, of God being transcendent. So really what could be said there, if you wanted to bring out a really good definition of the word holiness or the word holy, is it is a cut above. It is a cut apart, but it is a cut Above, it includes these thoughts of transcendence, which is why we can say it's above. It includes also concepts of purity and perfection. It is an unstained cut above. To say God is holy is to say that he is unstained cut above as opposed to the rest of creation, which is stained, which is cursed which is fallen. We're not going to spend a lot of time on defining the word. We're going to look more at images here in a minute. But let me say this. I want to come back to a statement I just made. A look at any other attribute apart from his holiness will likely end up distorted. Let me give you an example. A look at love, God's love, Apart from his holiness, if you tried to distinguish, if you tried to tease out his holiness and just look at his love, will end up distorted because likely you'll imagine his love to be like ours. Your interpretation of his love is likely going to be like ours. And you can think of some of the most pure examples of love that come to mind. The first one that comes to mind for me is the love of a mother for her child. I think most of us in this room would agree it's a beautiful love, isn't it? A love for her mo- of a mother for her child. But to what degree 
in any mother might there be a little bit of codependence? To what degree might there be in any mother, even a mother that loves the Lord, a little hint of a child filling a little void for them? I haven't read Mommy Dearest, but I've read about it. This woman adopted to fill a void in her life. How easy could any of us do that? You think about the love of a mom for her child, and you can then consider for a moment that God's love is altogether different. His love must be a holy love, because if we were to think of a mom who gave her child up to suffering and death for somebody who didn't deserve it, we would likely think pretty poorly about that mom. But that's exactly what our holy God did for us. We have to distinguish between love and holy love or we'll make a mess of things. God's love is all together, together different. You might think of a love of a boyfriend for his girlfriend. I'm gonna tell you right now, that can really be a mess. When Christy and I were married, and I've confessed this before from this pulpit before, so it's not anything new. What I said, what I thought and felt really when I said, Christy, I love you, was, Christy, I love me and I want you. Being really honest. That's not a holy love. Some other examples of maybe a husband's love for his wife. Could it have a tinge? Likely, will it have a little tinge of, I love you for how you make me feel? Men, can we be really honest? Do we ever project that and put that on our wives? I do it all the time. Or how about love for friends? You might think that pure, but we can oftentimes realize that our friends become those who really validate us. Those who we love might be those who make us feel the least lonely. I feel like I need to shower at times when I hear people refer to the love of God like it's some sort of romantic love. Projecting our love on the kind of holy love that our God has for us. Like God is madly in love for you and pines for you. When you hear somebody say that, if you have an opportunity to talk with them afterwards, to say, no, our God's love is altogether different from somebody who's hot for somebody. You may have heard that kind of language, that kind of talk before. It makes me want to shower. His love, his love though, is a holy love. His love is a cut above. It is unstained. It is transcendent. It is altogether pure and altogether different from any love we could possibly know, earthly love. Now, God is holy. Hopefully, we've established that. Maybe we're kind of entering into some new thoughts for you that maybe God is first holy Maybe all other attributes extend from his holiness, that it is the attribute of attributes. But hopefully, at least this morning, you're seeing that God is definitely, without a doubt, holy. The second part of the sermon this morning is going to establish this, hopefully, is that God is holy. It was the first part. Second part is that holiness is terrible, Holiness is terrible. We're going to bring that out in the next few minutes. It helps to try and define the word holiness. You know, we can grab some words, a cut above, a cut separate, you know, an, an infinite cut above, but ultimately words are just creatures, so they're going to fall short. What may be better would be to look at the moments where holiness breaks out, and that's how we're going to spend these next few minutes, and we're going to bring out how terrible Holiness really is. And I don't mean bad, terrible. I mean frightening, terrible. Hopefully you're in Isaiah 6. As you're in Isaiah 6, I'm gonna kind of share a few other thoughts with you. There are a number of places we could go if we wanted to look at holiness breaking out and how it affects everyone. If we wanna understand holiness. Some examples I thought of is the dedication of the tabernacle. 
Listen to this passage in Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't even go in because because God's holiness showed up. That's the dedication of the tabernacle. The dedication of the temple was even more dramatic. As soon as Solomon finished praying in 2 Chronicles 7, he closes his prayer and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not even enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. It, when I really studied that for the first time, when I was a kid, there used to be some videos on TV. I don't know if they were PBS or if they were commercials on main channels or whatever. We only got one channel, so it, it had to be NBC. But these, these commercials where Dick Van Dyke is telling you what to do if you have a fire in your home. Some of y'all may remember that, the older, the, the more aged and wise among us. Where he said, get down on your hands and knees so because that's where the air is. And I'm just envisioning the priests and Moses and Solomon getting down on their hands and knees just so they can breathe because God's holiness showed up. I'm thinking of these moments, and man, I'm going to tell you what, these moments where his holiness breaks out, they are emotive. They are like visceral in terms of how people respond. No one's passive when his holiness shows up. I thought about the Garden of Gethsemane. This posse comes out to arrest Jesus. I think I have the page marked, and if I don't, I'll look real quick. It's a pretty cool little moment. The account is in John. They come to arrest Jesus, and here's what it says. He went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there's a garden where his disciples entered, and Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a posse, a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them in the original language, our translation says, I am he. And the original language says, he said two words, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground because <laughs> his holiness showed up. There's example after example in our Bibles. I thought about Saul on the Damascus Road. God's holiness shows up. The holiness of the sun shows up, and Saul is left blind and mourning and fasting for three days. When God's holiness shows up, it's not a joke. It's not a small thing. It's a major event. Isaiah 6 is in some ways a go-to passage for one of these moments. Let's look at this passage together. Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I'm looking just at those first three verses and just considering we only see a couple of creatures there. We know Isaiah is there because he's giving the account. We'll see what happens to Isaiah in a minute when some holiness shows up. But let's just look at the seraphim, these creatures that are surrounding the throne or that are above the throne are declaring to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory while they cover their eyes. While they cover their feet, while they fly, declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This thrice holy reference is called the Trisagion. 
There's special emphasis in this thrice holy reference, the special emphasis of what he is and the degree in which he is holy. And notice just to reinforce the whole attribute of attributes thing. They don't declare love, love, love. They don't declare grace, grace, grace. They don't declare merciful, merciful, merciful. And while we know God is those things, what these holy creatures themselves that aren't fallen declare day in and day out is holy, holy, holy. And let's see what happens in verse 4. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Trying to imagine what this must have been like years ago when I was stationed out in Southern California, I was out there, I don't know what time of the morning it was when an earthquake hit and it was a a real earthquake where a lot of stuff was destroyed in Los Angeles and stuff fell. And I remember hearing people screaming in the streets outside. I I just laid in my bed. I thought, well, this will be the softest place to be if something's about to happen. I'm laying in my bed, realizing that I'm laying underneath a big pane of glass, a window that's right above my bed there. Not a good place to lay what could have happened to that glass. But I did have the chance to sit up on my knees and look out that window and see people screaming at the foundations that shook and thought for a moment how terrifying this little vision must have been for Isaiah. Let's see what happens to him in verse 5. Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When God's holiness shows up and we see this white, hot, holy moment, we see a guy here that we can hopefully relate to, a guy named Isaiah that's made of the same stuff that we're made of, and this guy is scrambling for a crack in the floor. Where can I hide from the holiness of this holy God? Woe is me. I am lost. And you know what? Not only that, I live among a people that are lost and hopeless and unclean. Nobody's passive when God's holiness shows up because his holiness is terrible. Turn to Revelation 4. Give you a little bit of context as you're turning there. The book of Revelation is a it's apocalyptic literature. Really, the whole book is a vision that John receives on the Isle of Patmos. Chapters 4 and 5 are two of my most favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Chapter 4 is the throne room vision of God, and chapter 5 is the vision of the Lamb in the throne room. They're beautiful. Let's see what takes place in chapter 4 in this emotive, visceral moment. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 elders. And seated on the throne were 24, or excuse me, 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. 
And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, almighty, who was and is and is to come. Just in those first eight verses, let's look at the critters and see what happens when God's holiness is on display. We've got these critters, likely these same seraphim, four of them that never cease to say, like the waves crashing on the seashore that go all day and all night long, repeatedly, over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, relentlessly declaring his holiness. I reckon if these are the same guys that Isaiah saw, they're covering their eyes to shield their eyes from his holiness. See what happens in the next verses. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. God's holiness is leaving heavenly creatures repeating themselves like the waves on the seashore and it's leaving other creatures, 24 of them, sprawled out on their faces and hatless. Man. All of this is after John in chapter one is falling down dead because he's so shocked by what he's seeing. This is all before he's sobbing like a baby in chapter five. God's holiness leaves people wrecked because his holiness is terrible. I thought what might be cool would be if these glimpses of God, like Isaiah had, like John had, like Moses and Solomon and the priests had where they're having to shuffle down there on the floor like Dick Van Dyke taught us, like Saul on the Damascus Road had, like the posse in the Garden of Gethsemane had. I thought it might be cool if these glimpses of God in reckoning with his holiness were just for these guys. Wouldn't it be? We could read those passages and say, whoo, John, I bet that was scary. We could read those passages and say, Isaiah, man, whoo, I bet that was scary. Glad I don't ever have to deal with that. But here's the bad news for us before we get the good news later. The bad news for us is that God's very thorough in his holiness. Very thorough. Hebrews 4, 13 says that no creature is hidden from his sight. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All are naked and exposed. I'm looking at what Isaiah went through. I'm looking at what John went through. I'm looking at what, what Saul experienced on the Damascus Road. I'm imagining the Gethsemane soldiers. I'm imagining Moses and Solomon, and I'm realizing, oh, man, that's going to deal with me at some point. I will have to reckon with his holiness as well. We all will have to because he's not going to leave anybody out. His holiness is thorough. His holiness is terrible because it's so thorough. And we each will find ourselves before him saying exactly what Isaiah said, woe is me. And before we deal with the good news, I want us all to deal with the bad news. This I that doesn't miss a person. That's the way we all ought to feel right now. <laughs> woe. Dread. perfect sound effects for exactly what I'm wanting to get across right now. <laughs> Woe is me, <laughs> for I am lost, and I'm a man of unclean lips. Listen to these words from a man who was confronted with the holiness of Christ and was laid splayed all out and left blind, mourning, 
and fasting for three days. This is what he says about man. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. There's not a person that won't have to say, woe is me. Man, there's nothing in here. We don't know a whole lot about Isaiah, but Isaiah was a prophet, and I don't suspect he was really a loser. And what's the first thing comes out of his mouth when he sees the holiness of God? Woe is me. Woe is me. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. How do you really feel about it, Paul? Man, this from the guy that was left awash on the Damascus Road. You know what Paul is saying right there about mankind? Guilty, guilty, guilty. Thrice guilty. Uber guilty. Not holy. We would all have this response before God. Woe is me, for I am lost. I thought of other encounters that people had with God's holiness and really see what, more than anything, is a response that's, that's dreadful when they see his holiness. I thought about a couple of other examples. When Peter was first called to the ministry to follow Christ, Jesus was teaching by the Sea of Galilee. It says the Lake of Gennesaret, same thing. And people were crowding in around him. He's like, I need a boat. Come here, guy on a boat. Peter paddles over, cranks the Evan Rude, pulls over there. Jesus gets in the boat. He teaches from the boat for a while. And then he turns to Peter and says, hey, have you guys caught anything? He's like, nah, we've been fishing all night. We hadn't caught anything. And then Jesus says, well, why don't you cast your net on the other side of the boat? And they couldn't pull in the fish that were in the net. And how did Peter respond? He didn't say, gee, thanks, Jesus. That's a pretty good trick. Could you come fishing with me next time? Because, see, I'm a fisherman, and it would be helpful. That would be the health and wealth message right there, frankly, which is a big bunch of baloney. Come hang out with me, and it'll fill my nets. But how did Peter respond, man? He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I bet he felt like leaping out of the boat. I shared a story, in a, not in a sermon, in an email uh, this last week, a story of um, a storm. I'm going to share this little story just because it's brief. For those of you who got the email, it'll be familiar to you. In Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. On that day when evening came, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat. So this is the disciples and Jesus in the boat, just as he and the others, or just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. I've read about these storms on this lake, and apparently a tempest, I mean, a good word for it, could blow up in a matter of minutes. You could drown inside of, the, in, inside of the shore because these winds that whip across this Sea of Galilee. But he was in the stern, this is Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. All right, it's gotta, you got to take that in for a moment. All the disciples are in this boat, and they're scrambling like, we're about to drown. This is really bad. And Jesus is over there in the stern Snoozing. So they woke him up and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That's not a question. That's an accusation. Jesus, you don't care that we're perishing. You ever feel that way? And he awoke and shared three words. Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? They're more afraid after the storm than they were during the storm because they had to deal with the holiness of God right in front of them. And his holiness is terrible. 
dreadful even. R.C. Spruill referred to what takes place when you have to deal and reckon with the holiness of God and he calls it personal disintegration. I love that. Personal disintegration. These are moments when his holiness, his infinite perfection, his infinite cut aboveness leaves you awash, leaves you wasted, leaves you all to pieces like all these people we've looked at this morning are on their faces. They're blind or they're looking for a crack. They're hiding from it. They're trying to get out of the boat and get away from it because that's how his holiness should leave you. And it shouldn't just happen at conversion, people. This should be a regular visit. Not every day necessarily. But this is a place we should often visit. It's here when you're standing before his infinite holiness. In some way, you've wrestled with a passage. Or you've, you've engaged a sermon in a way like you never have before. Where you find yourself not a special little snowflake. But you find yourself an enemy of God. And you feel and hear the words, guilty, guilty, guilty. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Do you ever go there? It's when you go there that you will find this personal disintegration. That really will lead to something beautiful. I have these moments more often than I would like where I feel woe, woe, woe. And they sneak up on me. Just this week, Thursday, I'm trying to work on a sermon, finishing up the sermon. Very poorly, poorly handled something with Scott. Very poorly handled something with my friend and my teammate. Feeling, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm cutting grass the next day, and I'm thinking through how the whole thing went down. I'm cutting grass the next day, and I remembered something else. This moment of woe, this little visit where God's holiness was in view while my unholiness was in view. I thought of something that happened. It's probably a year, year and a half ago by now. I don't always... When I preach on Sunday mornings, in fact, probably more often than not, I feel like I did a very poor job. It's something that I wrestle with, like this personal besetting sin where I go home and I'm like, oh, I fumbled that. And I had one of those Sundays. I went home and I'm like, oh, I fumbled that. I'm in the, you know, the virtual fetal position, not literally, but I mean, figuratively in my heart. I'm just like, oh, I didn't do a good job. And the phone rings. I was just about to fall asleep too. I was just about to fall asleep. This is the story. I'll, t- I'll tell you the title of this story because we may refer to it again in some, day, some future. This is the story of forgotten iPads and warm cookies. <laughs> I'm almost asleep. I mean, I'm just so close to sleep and I really kind of wanted to sleep because then maybe when I wake up, I'll feel better. And the phone, my cell phone rings and it's Clay Petzold. And I'm like, oh man. I think I even screened it or I may have answered it I think I may have screened it and then listened to his message. Hey, Corey forgot her iPad at the church building. Can you come let us in? I think I heard it and I was like, man, I can't leave him stranded. But I was really upset about it. I mean, honestly, I was really upset. And I'm, I hope y'all have seen vulnerable before. So here's vulnerable. My thoughts were, I can throw a rock to about four deacons' houses. Some of them have keys. Why, why am I getting the phone call? Because I just stood and delivered. I just preached after all. Don't they know that I just went to combat? I mean, I'm fatigued. (laughs) Calling me. So I I didn't say anything when I talked to him on the phone. I said, okay, I'll be up there in a minute. And I come up here and I open the door. I remember opening the door and they go in there and grab the iPad. And I, I asked Clay, I said, why didn't you call any other deacons? And I launched off into this little tutoring session. I'm going to give Clay on, what, here's how you really want to take care of me on a Sunday afternoon. You leave me alone. <laughs> I mean, I didn't use those exact words, but it wasn't far from it. It wasn't far from it. And Clay just kind of looked at me like, dude, what is wrong with you? <laughs> what? <laughs> wow, I just bumped into something really mad. And it seems deep. 
And I went home, and I was like, man, I am such a heel. And I called him, I apologized, and he, he said, hey, man, Corey and I are driving home and just praying for you and weeping for you. A little while later, they show up at my front door with warm cookies. You know the scripture about pouring, burning coals on somebody's head? Man, what's worse than burning coals is warm cookies when they're burning. <laughs> they're pouring warm cookies on my head. It's kind of a mixed blessing, but I'm going to tell you what, I still remember that moment, and I still remember and enjoy the grace that was extended to me and a friend that said, dude, we're fine. You're my brother. Of course I forgive you. But what I remember in that is I don't doubt that I'm forgiven. I don't doubt that we're not good. But what I remember in that is, whoa, 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 wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Man, those little encounters with the holiness of God are things that we need. We need periodic dread because periodic dread is a great tutor for what's really the good news. I say this last part of the message for um, our supper time. And what I want to do in these next few minutes is I would like to have a silent distribution of the supper, if we can do that. Y'all guys that are distributing, let's go ahead and do that. And we'll finish the last part of the message while we have the elements in our hands. God is uber holy. He is thrice holy. And his holiness is terrible. But it's survivable. It's survivable. Isaiah 57, verse 15, says this, such a dear passage. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. We've established that, right? And I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He dwells with the one who on occasion visits that woe, 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 and then turns to the only, only thing that makes holiness survivable, and that is his son, period. I don't know how many years ago I preached John 3, but a story became dear to me as I preached it. It's in Numbers 21. Just listen to this story. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Guilty. Here, guilty. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food that falls from the sky every day that we don't even have to go get. It's just there. We loathe this food that falls from the sky. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. You want a visual aid of our sin problem? That's it, right there. No one's righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. All have grumbled about the food that falls from the sky. All have been bitten by the snake. And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned. Yep. For we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from among us. So Moses prayed for the people. Instead of taking away the serpents, look what he did. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole that everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. When Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus, he said these words. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. God's holiness is survivable as snake-bitten folk when we look to the sun high and lift it up, period. That's how holiness is survivable. On your best day, we can't stand before a holy God apart from a perfect substitute. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what this is a reminder of every single week. And here's the crazy good news. Not only is holiness survivable, but according to Hebrews 4, the work that Christ did was so complete and so absolute that not only do we not have to look for a crack in the floor, not only do we have to hide our face, we can boldly enter the throne room. We can enter with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace. That's how complete Christ's work was. If somebody wants to know what it means to follow Christ, man, that's it right there. Where you cast yourself on his perfect and complete work and you ask to be spared the white hot holiness of God or his wrath to be more exact through what Christ has done, through faith in his son as we look to the son high and lifted up. That's what we're doing each week when we take the supper. We're being reminded of that because we're forgetful. We start to think our salvation is how, based on how, how well we do that week. And then we think, ah, oh, I had a woe this week. I had a woe moment. Not realizing that's a good tutor. That's a good tutor for what we have in this. What we have in Christ's personally disintegrated body and his blood shed for us. Man, it's good news to know that a holy God dwells with personally disintegrated people who are casting their faith on Christ. Man, is that good? That's good. That's like warm cookies. Let's take and eat together. take and drink. Augustine said of holiness, what is that which gleams through me and smites my heart without wounding it? What is that which gleams through me and smites my heart without wounding it? I am both a shudder and a glow, a shudder insofar as I am unlike it, a glow insofar as I am like it. Holiness is crazy. It's awesome. It's terrible. And it's survivable in Christ. Let's respond in song this morning.